Thank you, Alan, for that summary. And, uh, and by, by way of summary, looking back, introduction for what we're going to look at today. Uh, and uh, uh, very well said. The very, uh, my heart's desire to, to present to you from God's word throughout these five days that what we need to do is continually, daily, uh, wonderfully come back to the Lord of all wonder and grace and cherish that relationship that we have with him. And then, not in the fashion of a theological proposition, but overflowing from the relationship we have in a heart of gratitude, take this gospel to the streets. Not either or, both and. Found doctrine because as the Lord said, thy word is truth. Because we know that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, is the only truth that there is. There is no truth apart from God's word. It's the very truth that the world needs to know and needs to be confronted at any point where their lives and thinking and everything else is not in conformity with that truth. But, uh, so, so it has to be both that, but then also that we wouldn't, in some type of misguided, jealous fashion, keep that to ourselves, but rather make that known, uh, even to the ends of the earth. So I was... Uh, it was my desire to, uh, to take us back to the lasting uh, end, uh, goal of missions, being to glorify God and enjoy him forever in our missionary activity and, and to uh, present uh, through a look of the scriptures and, and our Lord as our great king, of whom we all said at one time or another, explicitly or implicitly, about whom we said, rather about whom we said, to our shame, I have no king. I have no king. There, we have no king, the Jews said that day, but Caesar. Uh, we have, to one degree or another, said that. And then marvelously and mysteriously been made aware of the fact that that king, though we would have in ourselves rejected him, died for us. And by his grace, we have now received him and embraced him. And to us, he has given the right to be the children of God. Now, that's such a glorious message. That's such a wonderful reality that it is, uh, well, I would say impossible that we keep it to ourselves, but we have to make sure that uh, we fight the tendency that we would keep this bottled up within, our, within ourselves and share it to those that the Lord brings into our lives. We've looked at that. Now we're going to look at today in both of our sessions, and they might run together. I'll just break it perhaps indiscriminately and finish up uh, at the end of our second session at the great commissions as they're given to us in God's word in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So as we'll see how this works out, probably Matthew and Mark today, Luke and John tomorrow, uh, Lord willing. I mentioned uh, yesterday morning that there are many reasons why it's appropriate that we would share our faith. Some of them are selfish, in a, in a, in not in the pejorative, but in the positive sense. That is to say, we receive so much in the doing of it. Some of them, that is to say, they are selfless. Uh, some of them are, are, are not uh, uh, that selfless in that sense, but rather it would be out of a concern for the lost or just out of our heart's desire to obey the command of him who said go. And the hymns were selected this morning, I think, in reflection of that wonderful truth. For instance, hymn 370, with which we all uh, concluded, we have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. The first verse. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis the Lord's command. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Shout salvation, full and free. Highest hills and deepest caves. This our song of victory. Jesus saves. 
Jesus saves. We're going to consider those marching orders that the Lord has given to his church as they are recorded in Matthew, the 28th chapter. If you haven't already done so, you can turn in your Bibles to that portion of God's word. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. By the way, is this my copy, Al? Did you? I hope, I think so. I was going to say that I misplaced my copy of your copy of the copies of whatever we're trying to do, so I'll be more befuddled than usual, but I'm glad it was, I, le- I only left it here and it's, it's here from last evening. Good, I can make reference to that. Why don't I help you there and tell you what page in the outline we're in? Wednesday morning, page 23. A look at the Great Commissions, part one. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thus far, the reading of our Lord's word. Let's pause in prayer and look to him in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day that you have given to us. We thank you for the rest that we received uh, last evening. Father, we thank you for family camp, for a time wherein we can uh, enjoy the, the rich blessings that you have given to us and that you have done so as a family of families. Father, we thank you that we can renew the friendships in Christ that you have given to us over the years, that we get to see each other for an extended amount of time for this week, and also to make new friendships in the body of Christ. We praise you for that wonderful blessing that is ours in covenant, in him and through whom we have the assurance of the one who is not ashamed even to call us brothers. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to spend five days together uh, in family camp. What a wonderful blessing it is that we can spend our time in your word. We thank you, Father, that you have opened our eyes to your word and the truth therein. We pray that you would now uh, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. So that as we have been sanctified in Christ, we then would make him known. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. The crumbs are reading through. Thank you. I noticed that my cup was empty too. The crumbs are reading through the uh, Bible in a year this year so for the first time as a family. We've done it as a marriage and uh, individually over the years, but as a family, uh, we're doing it. And it so happened our reading this morning as we're reading a selection from the Old Testament and the selection from the New Testament. Uh, this morning's selection was the fourth chapter, the second half of the fourth chapter of the Book of Acts, and it um, really is the. Uh, Conclusion follows on the heels of last night's talk, and I just thought I'd uh, read to you from that uh, chapter, the Believer's Prayer. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, O Lord, consider their threats and and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I think this section in and of itself is a wonderful uh, fulfillment of uh, the uh, believers and the apostles doing what the Lord had commanded them to do in our reading for this morning, the 28th, uh, in, in Matthew 28, in the end sections there. The threefold goal of our evangelism you have in there, your, there in your outlines. There are three sections to the order that we have, our marching orders, as we go in the name of the one who is the captain, and we are his soldiers. We are to make disciples, we are to baptize them, and we are to teach them. The threefold goal of our evangelistic task. We have this commission man or mandate given in all four Gospels, but here in Acts, that's the thrust of what Matthew has to teach us. Before we start, actually, uh, looking at that, those three parts, I'd like us to look back to verse 17 of the commission and see what it was that the apostles were doing. We read in Matthew 28, verse 17, they worshipped him. Notice what was going on here. They were worshipping him when the commission came. True evangelism is the overflow of a devotional life. You have, as you look through the book of Acts too, a turning point in, in, in the history of, of uh, Christ's commission and going, spreading according to his uh, mandate there given in Acts, the first chapter, that it was started in Jerusalem, then throughout Judea, then Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And you come to chapter 13 as Luke uh, records the spread of the gospel, the expansion of the kingdom, uh, and, the, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the 13th chapter there's a very specific turning point where you have the first instance of the church as God's instrument in an organized way commissioning apostles and sending them with the gospel. And what was it that they were doing in the beginning of the 13th chapter of the book of Acts? They were worshiping the Lord. So too here when the command of the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth comes, they were worshiping the Lord. Notice that worship, the devotional life, is the ground from which our, inv- our ev- evangelistic endeavor springs. I didn't bring the book with me. Can you believe it? Yes, I'm sure you can. I left it back in my room. I was going to grab it, uh, but it, it doesn't matter because I know what it is that he says. I've read, I read it so often, but I wanted to hold it up so you could see it and just jot down the title. It's in your suggested reading list, so you don't need to actually see the book, but the title of the book is Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the Nations be glad. The author of the book is John Piper, and there are quite a few quotes in the material from that book or other books that he has written. He starts that book, this is why I didn't actually have to bring it with me, I've almost memorized it, but he starts that book on page one with this bold statement and wonderful pronouncement. He says, evangelism is not the end of the church. Worship is the end of the church. 
Worship is the supreme end and goal of the church, not evangelism. And he thinks that through and he applies it a little bit. He says, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Wherever there is not worship, the gospel must go so that through the preaching of the word and the Holy Spirit blessing that to the hearts of men and women, they would be made worshipers. I really like the way Piper expresses this and sees how they do go hand in hand, but, but the one is, is really subject to the other. And here we notice that in the, the context of the Great Commission, as it's most often understood and perceived, the commission as is recorded in the 28th chapter of Matthew, the apostles were worshiping the Lord before Christ's command came to them. True evangelism is the overflow of a devotional life, a life of worship. Now it has three distinct parts, and it is not our prerogative to omit or, or, or overlook any one of them. The first one there in your outline, make disciples. The first part of the goal of evangelism is to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, seeking to bring them into a right relationship with the Son of God. That's the first goal. Make disciples, to bring them into a right relationship with the Son of God. Now let's be clear what constitutes a disciple as we're told to go and make disciples. In order to do that, first of all, I'd like to say what it is that a disciple is not. A disciple is not merely a learner. Usually the definition that we think of as a disciple is one who would hear the teachings of, a disciple would be one who would learn of, and a disciple is a learner. It includes that, but a disciple, biblically, is more than just a learner. That's not an adequate definition. One may, after all, intellectually, learn a whole lot about other people and consider himself or herself a disciple of that philosopher or this person that, the, that, that was used in the development, historical development of a nation, whomever that might be. But that is not the biblical definition of a disciple, nor is it the type of disciples that we have been commanded uh, to go and to make. Being a disciple is more than giving intellectual assent, a, a nod of the head, a tip of the cap, uh, to Jesus Christ. It's more than learning a few Christian slogans or perhaps learning them and putting them on the bumper stickers of our car. Slogans such as try God or, uh, or I found it or get smart, get saved. Being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is more than, than learning uh, th- uh, such slogans like that and, and then just putting them on the back end of our vehicle. Being a disciple is not just hearing about the Lord or even in our, in our minds giving assent to the Lord. It's intimately following the Lord. We were speaking last night before uh, knocking off uh, four, four of the men from camp and we were talking about the fact that it seems that the day in which we live, a lot of evangelism that goes on or the, the tenor and thrust of our work, people seem to be working on the operating assumption that what we need to do is to do away with all the barriers, reduce the barriers, kind of make it easy and make it level and make it plain to call other people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and we were talking about that as a foursome and we were reminding each other that it seems that Christ's call to discipleship throughout the scriptures does the exact opposite. 
we don't remove, Christ didn't remove all the barriers. It seems as we read the, uh, the uh, uh, instances in the book of Luke and elsewhere on what it means to be a disciple, he was erecting those barriers. He was calling people to consider the cost at every turn, reminding them how difficult the, t- the road will be. And I think I have them, some of them, yes, I do, good. You have notes in, in your uh, outlines there. And I went through and looked again at the book of, of Luke where it is that Jesus Christ, the Lord, who calls us to make disciples through his earthly ministry, told us what disciples are and the cost of discipleship. Luke 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Nine, and he, he was to uh, get up and leave what he had and follow the master. Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The same chapter, verses 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his very own life, cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. What a disciple is not, clearly from the book of Luke, is one who would just give a nod of the head, mental assent, yes, I believe that, but not consider and count the cost. We sing just as I am without one plea in coming to Christ, and that is good. We must do that. But our just as I am without one plea has to at some point become all that I am I owe to thee. Or from another hymn, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. A love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my heart, my all. A disciple is one, in the biblical sense, who, learning the teachings, desires to follow the teacher in order to become like him. That is there in your outlines. A disciple, then, is one who, learning the teachings, desires to follow the teacher in order to become like him. We need to be with Jesus in order that we can become like Jesus so that we can then show the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ and him in us as we are following his command to make disciples of the nations. You remember in Mark, the third chapter, the 14th verse, as Jesus is appointing the twelve, Mark recounts, he appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him 
and that he might send them out to preach. Being sent to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ requires first that we would be with him, that we can be like him. And of course, even the unbelievers took up, sat up uh, and, and observed and took notice of this in Acts the fourth chapter later on. After the captain of the church has given them the church uh, his marching orders and they in faithful obedience go and preach the gospel. Um, in the third chapter of the book of Acts, there is both the miraculous uh, a, a sign of the Lord Jesus Christ working through his apostles in the healing of a man born lame, lame since birth and Peter using this opportunity to give all glory to God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ uh, who healed this man and then preached the gospel from that. Well, the uh, le- leaders uh, w- uh, were dismayed by this and they were telling Peter and John to keep quiet. But they also observed something about Peter and John in Acts 4, the verse 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished And they took note of what? They took note that these men had been with Jesus. A disciple is one who, learning of the teachings, desires to follow the teacher in order to become like him. We are called to make disciples. We must be disciples first in order that we can make disciples of the nations. Then also we're called to baptize them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The second part of the goal is just as clear as the first. It is baptizing them. And what is baptism? What is baptism? How is baptism administered? Baptism is a sacrament of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a church ordinance. Beyond dispute, the church we would have to deduce from this is the God-appointed agent of evangelism. So as we consider Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, we're going to have to perhaps lean back towards the corporate aspect of our evangelism. Throughout this week, I've been in a sense struggling with that because while I want the overall tenor of our learning from God's word to be geared towards the personal uh, engagement uh, in, in, uh, in evangelism, how it is that we are Uh, to be about the task of sharing our faith and making Christ known among the nations individually. And there will be a lot of that, and perhaps we'll get back to that tonight. But here in Matthew 28, we need to underscore and and understand the fact that it is the church that is the God-appointed, God-ordained agent of evangelism. That is beyond dispute. And part of the goal, as we have it in Matthew 28, is to bring men and women into a right relationship to the church of God. First, the first one, to bring them into a right relationship with the Son of God. The second one, to bring them into a right relationship to the church of God. They are to be baptized. We don't have any prerogative to omit this part of the Great Commission, for it is the commission of the Lord himself. So it's just as clear as the first. We are to go baptizing them. Therefore, that is to say, the church is the God-appointed instrument or agent of evangelism. Now, perhaps there's no better place to begin a study of the sacraments, what it is that he commissions the church to do here, than uh, to start uh, with the Westminster Confession of Faith. In the 27th chapter, the first article, we read the sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. 
Good. It is there in your outlines. Holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Immediately instituted by God. Directly. Directly instituted by God. To represent Christ and his benefits. And to confirm our interests in him. And also, and I don't know if you're in your version this came out in italicized fashion. Uh, my printer was having difficulties uh, on the morning I was to leave, of course. But, and it didn't. But I think it's italicized in yours because I wanted to make an emphasis here on this part of the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith regarding the sacraments. To put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. What then are the sacraments? What is the sacrament of baptism? Well, to begin with, sacraments are signs and seals. As signs, they represent, they represent something. They signify something. They point to something. And that something is Jesus Christ himself. The one who tells us to baptize also gives us in that great commission the, sac- uh, the order for the sacrament of baptism. And that signifies Christ himself. Since the blessings of Jesus' saving work are never enjoyed apart from a relationship with him, that we be united to him, that we have communion with him through faith. The sacraments in representing Christ also show forth all the wonderful blessings of this new covenant relationship that the believer possesses in Jesus Christ. As signs, the sacraments involve some external physical elements in the case of uh, communion, uh, both the bread and the wine, in the case of baptism, the water. They also involve actions that get their meaning by referring to an inward, uh, invisible working of God's grace. So we refer to the sacraments and the elements of the sacraments as outward signs of an inward grace and that they are. They are. So what's implicit in all this is that the church, the church is really home base uh, for all of our evangelistic efforts. Again, I mentioned in, Luke, in Acts, the 13th chapter, it was the church at Antioch where they were gathered in worshiping and in prayer and in fasting, wherein the Holy Spirit came and said, set apart to me, Paul and Barnabas, to be sent. The worshiping church is home base. It's both the launching pad for evangelism and it's the receiving lodge for all of our evangelistic activity. We do not have the option, it is not our prerogative, to separate evangelism from the local church, to make personal evangelism as over against the corporate evangelism of the church, to have it either or. It must be both and. But we have to see the church as God's agent and instrument uh, in, in all of our evangelistic activity. And it has been so emphasized throughout the New Testament, uh, in particular in the book of Acts, but all, also elsewhere. Now, I believe, again, in your copies on page 24, I have these references, and we're going to quickly uh, look at those references. In the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, the great confession, the apostolic confession, through the spokesman, uh, Peter, uh, to put, when, when put the question, who does man say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And, G, and uh, Peter, speaking for the twelve, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Lord Jesus Christ tells Peter that he was blessed because it was his Father in heaven who had revealed this to him. It was his Father in heaven who had opened Peter's heart to be able to see and to say, you are the Christ, the promised one, the Son of the living God. 
And, and Christ then goes on to expound upon that blessing. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. The church is also entrusted with the, uh, with the care of who would enter uh, the church. The church is given the keys of the kingdom. A few chapters later, Matthew 18, verse 17, the Lord says, if he refuses to listen to them, those who go, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the scripture speaks of the church and it says it is God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Ephesians, Ephesians of course, the book of the New Testament, wherein the, the uh, teaching of the topic of the church comes front and center. The first chapter, verse 22. And God placed all things under his, Jesus's, under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Chapter 3, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The same chapter, verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then, of course, in chapter 5, the well-known analogy between the marriage relationship and that which is behind it and under it and around it and over it in blessing. Verses 23 to 27. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Then in, throughout the book of Acts, we see this developed in the history of the of the establishment and the growing and the growth and the planning of that church. Again, chapter 13, I have it there recorded. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. It was the church that sent, and it was the church to which they returned when they reported the great things that the Lord was doing throughout the nations. Acts 14, verse 23. In Asia Minor, Paul and Barnabas ordained elders in every church. Acts 14, verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Acts 15, verse 3. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this, made, this news made all the brothers exceedingly glad. The next verse, verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. I hope it's becoming very clear here, very apparent, that is the church, which is God's instrument and agent for the evangelistic activity, even to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 15, verse 30. 
The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. You remember the context there? The uh, dispute which was settled at the Jerusalem Council, and then they were sent with the decision of the church uh, there gathered, the regional church, back to the local church in order to tell what that decision was, and they delivered the letter. Acts the 18th chapter, verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church and then later addressing those elders in the 28th verse of the same chapter 20. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. We are commissioned to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is one of the three elements of the Great Commission as we have it recorded in Matthew 28. And it is not the prerogative of any individual or any group to overlook or to omit this from the task that the Lord, Jesus Christ, the one to to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, the one who is the captain of salvation and gives the obedient soldiers uh, their marching orders, we have no prerogative to omit this. And we learn from this that the church is the uh, instrument by which evangelism is to reach the nations. In, um, you probably have the footnote there, I believe, in uh, Back to the Basics, um, Roger Wagner was with us yesterday, not today, but he has a chapter there uh, in that book, uh, which I would recommend to your reading, um, on the church, Back to the Church, it's entitled, and in that chapter, he writes these words. I quoted, I copied the quote into your booklets. Several years ago, I was talking about evangelism to a fellow minister when I said that one cannot become a Christian only in the privacy of one's own living room. He was somewhat taken aback by the statement and asked what I meant. He was especially concerned in light of the many door-to-door evangelism programs that have been developed to help people become Christians in the privacy of their own homes. Of course, I was not saying that the New Testament frowns on door-to-door evangelism. My point was that when the New Testament speaks of becoming a Christian, it has much more in view than many contemporary evangelicals suppose. Specifically, becoming a Christian involves more than just believing the gospel and receiving Christ, though both are essential first steps. It must include a definitive act of coming out in response to the call of the gospel. According to the biblical pattern, those who come out in this way are to receive baptism and consequently identify with the church, participate in the worship and service of the covenant community, and submit to its leadership. Genuine converts, in other words, will come out of the world. They will stand up and be counted with God's people. Genuine converts will want to come out of the world. Genuine converts will want to come into the church. This is the work that the Lord is doing. I will build my church. Now, after that, I have one line down at the bottom, and I think I should have cut and pasted and put that elsewhere. It's a little bit out of, uh, out of place in, in, the, in the logic of the outline. But I will, since you find it there, the parachurch is not the God-appointed agent of evangelism. I'll just elaborate that a little, and I want to touch on it. Uh, the parachurch, uh, speaking in general terms here, has been used of the Lord to, to accomplish many things. 
and many wonderful things. And, and uh, if the power church orga- organizations or as an institution is careful, it, it uh, really can uh, uh, promote evangelism throughout the nations. But power church organizations must ultimately define themselves and the reason they exist in the context of the church. To be a power church in this very positive sense of the word, the power church which exists for the church, for the strengthening of the church, for the planning of the church throughout the ends of the earth. That all nations will come into the church and worship uh, the one who alone is worthy of all of our glory and honor and praise. So to justify their existence, uh, they must do so on that basis. The Bible clearly teaches that evangelism is the task of the organized church. We live in a day of specialization, you know, where we break down and we have this group and we have that group and the other group. And again, that can be very useful for the purpose of promoting the gospel and getting to regions which would be otherwise beyond the reach, uh, perhaps. But at the same time, we need to be careful because the New Testament ministered uh, to the whole family, not fragmentation and specialization, but the whole family, men, women, young people, and children. The families were blessed in order that they might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And the church is the expression of the family of God. So we really need to see this in this positive light and be very positive about the role of our local church in the purpose of evangelism. In other words, when you invite somebody to come to church on Sunday morning, and you feel, you know, I'm probably at the extent of my abilities. I'm at my limit by doing that. But you are honoring the Lord in in picking up the phone and inviting that neighbor to come with you to church next Sunday morning. Uh, You are in obedience and in perfect compliance with the Great Commission as we have it uh, in Matthew, the 28th uh, chapter. It's a great first step. Again, uh, quoting Wagner, uh, and at the uh, next part, it's on the next page of your outlines, page 25, uh, and something which, which I have seen much in the United States, but also perhaps the culture where you have sent us in Mexico, we would uh, represent a culture which Rag- Wagner me- makes reference of uh, here, and I don't know if I actually copied it and, pasted it and put it in there, but he mentions about how in other countries, well, why don't I read it first and see if it's there. In post-Christian American culture, we are fooled into thinking that it is possible, at least to some degree, to live in fellowship with Christ apart from his church. Thus, the biblical call to make a radical breach with the world when we come to Christ grates on us. The biblical biblical call is recorded, for instance, in James. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or as is recorded in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this, this call to make a radical breach with the world when we become a Christian, grace on us. We think it too extreme. In our culture, we need to stress the importance of the visible church with its worship, sacraments, officers, and discipline. And we need to stress its importance more than ever. The Reformed faith, with this unique doctrine of the church, should open the eyes of all who name the name of Christ. Then Roger Wagner quotes John Murray. John Murray once wrote that the church is that visible entity that exists and functions in accord with the institution of Christ as its head. 
the church that is the body of Christ, indwelt and directed by the Holy Spirit, consisting of those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, manifested in the congregations of the faithful. And then finally, the church glorious, holy and without blemish, of which we read in the book of Ephesians. Wagner concludes, Oh, that we would all become responsible members of congregations of the faithful. If only we would see that joining the church, the visible community of God's people, is not an optional second step after conversion. To come to Christ is to come to Christ's church. Now, I realize I didn't actually copy the part in that chapter somewhere. He talks about the fact that in other nations and in other cultures, this is not really an obstacle that it has become in the United States, where we've uh, kind of lapsed into a complacency and we've been fooled into thinking, yeah, I can come to Christ and just keep living my life and I don't have to have any uh, relationship with the local invisible church. He talks about the fact that when the gospel uh, of salvation in Christ alone, because of God's gracious work alone, received by faith in Christ alone, comes, and and the, the radical transformation and the breach which it requires is pretty much upfront and evident. And this is clearly the case, not always, but largely, in the country of Mexico, in the city of Tijuana. When you hear the gospel and you realize that it is not by works that my hands would have wrought, it is not by anything that I have done, can do, or ever will do, but by Christ alone and my newfound relationship to him. That is to say, some of our youth group, mother and father, I, through the church I've come to know Jesus Christ and that I can have new life, full life, and abundant life in Jesus Christ. And it's in no other. That is to say, Mom and Dad, I can no longer really worship uh, Mary such as we do. When the people of the country of Mexico hear this, they perceive this as a rejection of everything that they are. The families do often. You now say you're going to this kind of a church, or you believe in Jesus. You've become an hermano. They are disparagingly called. Oh, you're a brother now. Sometimes an alleluia, a praise God, you're an alleluia. You have rejected, therefore, everything that we stand for. You have rejected the virgin. You have denied the Virgin Mary. You don't believe in the virgin. You have denied our country, Mexico, and you have denied our family. And so, too, you will be denied. Well, where do they end up? Where do they go? They run to the church. Our church has seen some pretty exciting growth over the last year, a year and a half. And this has come, um, uh, correspondingly, uh, interestingly, with prayer meetings that have started on Tuesday nights in our church. They're not always really well attended. Sometimes we have eight. Sometimes we have 38. But one of the things I've noticed about these prayer meetings is what predominates the prayer meetings is gratefulness and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done in their own lives at the cost of their relationship to their families, but also specific prayer for the conversion of family members. It just dominates our time together. One girl got there late. She, oh, she's working very hard to finish her high school education and she wants to go on to uh, college and she's also working a job uh, outside. So uh, her days are very long and they are very full with uh, hard work and activity. But she loves to get to our church on Tuesday evenings when she can. And her name is Alicia. And she came to the prayer meeting some months ago out of breath, running up the hill, and got there a little bit late and quietly let herself in, sat in the back, and uh, joined in in the prayers and ended. But afterwards, she said, I, I came because I need uh, the prayers of, of my brothers and my sisters. I am feeling horrible. 
There was an incident this past weekend, and uh, the Lord really re- made me realize this morning that I have been disobeying Him by the way I've been responding to my mother and my father. Out of fear of my parents, I've been telling them that I'm going other places so I can come to the church. So I'm lying to my mom and dad in order to go worship the one who tells me to honor my father and my mother. So I went to my mom and I asked her, I told her, uh, Mom, I wasn't going to where I said I was, that I wouldn't be uh, long at, longer at uh, work. I wanted to go to church. And my mother flew off the handle and she slapped me. Uh, so what happened, Alicia said to our, our prayer group, was that my day was a wreck and everything uh, was just a mess and I was in real uh, anguish of soul. But then the next morning before I left for school, mom came up to me and there were tears in her eyes and she said, just give me time. Be patient with me. I'm sorry that I got angry at you with you yesterday, with you last night. Give me time and give your father time too and we'll get through this. So that's what Alicia is going through. Coming to Christ means a radical breach with the world and she, she so well knows Jane and I had the wonderful privilege of leading to Jesus Christ uh, during the college years. I, through sharing my faith, we were on a, a choir tour uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., and there was a lot of downtime between singing at the engagements that were on our itinerary, and I shared my faith with her. Her name is Mary Alice, and the Lord opened her heart, and she came to faith in Jesus Christ and to the Bible studies on campus, and Jane uh, thought about this, and we were talking about Mary Alice, and she said, you know, I think I'd like to invite her to, uh, to be my uh, doormate, my roommate uh, next uh, year so I can disciple Mary Alice. And Mary Alice, we saw her grow in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ amazingly throughout that year and in the Word. I said one time when I was uh, visiting uh, to Jane, boy, the Lord has just taken hold of Mary Alice's heart. You see the change. You know why? Because she's pouring over the Scriptures. What she wants now is the Word of God, more of the Word of God. She wants to be saturated with the Word of God and think God's thoughts after him according to his word. Well, having seen this change, she is from a a jealously Irish Catholic background, Uh, her mother especially, and the long of of the story, the short of the story, the the short version of the story, is that uh, her mother came to her one day and said, just so that you know, just so that all is clear, we hired a lawyer and we had the family will rewritten and you're out of it. So coming to Jesus Christ for Mary Alice was hearing that from her mother. You are no longer our daughter. We have disinherited you. Where do we go? Where do we turn? To whom do we run? Well, of course, to Christ himself. But to Christ as he's present in the local body, the visible church. So you see in these cultures where there's great persecution against the Lord and his church, sometimes this isn't so much an issue. And that's the point that Roger Wagner makes in the book Back to the Basics. Uh, To do one is to do the other, but we need to make sure in the context of the gospel to America and Southern California that we carefully guard both aspects of this teaching as we see it here in uh, Matthew 28. To come to Christ is to come to his church, and the church is the God-ordained agent of evangelism. Before we look at teaching them, part C... Uh, let's just take a break. Gary, there's a question in the back before we go. Yes, certainly.
what I would do to respond to that, oh, friends, you're going to have to make your questions more succinct so I can repeat them for the, for the uh, re- uh, tape recording and for no other reason. I, I love the breadth of your questions, but it is often said uh, in follow-up to what we are learning in these fir- the first point from this outline, it is often said and believed that our membership in the church, important as it is, is a membership in the church universal. Right, Gary? Is that, and, and that's where I see my membership. And that's where I see my part in, um, in uh, making realization of my, my new relationship out of the world into the church. And therefore, I don't see the specific demand of membership in the local church. Uh, how would I answer that? I don't have a lot of practice answering that because, again, I, d- I don't see it in the context of where we uh, minister the gospel. It's interestingly, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to, for me to observe that that's not an issue in Mexico. But then again, bear in mind that in southern Mexico, at least, we have heard that on many occasions to walk to church means that you have to be ready to dodge the stones that will be hurled at you because they know you're going to a non-Catholic church by the fact that you have your Bibles under your arms. That's the sign that you're, going, that you're not going to the Catholic church and they will just use that as sufficient warrant to stone you. Now that might be the case more often during some eras or in some regions of Mexico and then less often. Chiapas recently, in recent memory, the church has suffered uh, dr- uh, drastically and dramatically just to be able to go to church and worship. And I think because of that, we don't see this distinction. But I, the way I really would answer that in the United States uh, is by using not my own words, but John Murray's words. And in order to do that, I'd have to go and find them. Uh, and, 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 they're, and, they're somewhere, and they're somewhere in his collected writings. But he makes a, a really pertinent, a, a, a very uh, important observation between the distinction of the visible church and the invisible church or the universal church, and membership in either, membership in both. He reminds us that this distinction between the local church and the universal, or let's say the church visible and the church invisible, is a theological construct that's helping us define our thinking in, in the overall doctrine of the church. And it would be a misuse of that construct to think that in any way, shape, or form, we can have membership in an invisible church that would preclude or that would make unnecessary uh, membership in the visible church. It just can't happen. That's not why we talk in those terms in the first place. But rather we talk about the true church, uh, the church universal, the church which is the gathering, the the, the total number of the elect, which God alone, uh, alone knows and whom he calls out one by one into his glorious and universal body. Uh, but th- that would, we would, th- it would be a misuse of that teaching to then think from that that we can have membership some, somewhere automatically apart from membership in the local visible church. So I would basically answer them by saying there is no such thing. Uh, I know that we've kind of been lulled into thinking that there is such a thing, 
especially with evangelism on TV and television, which seems to offer the marks of the church, or at least some of them. I, I don't know about the sacraments of, of the church through television and electronic media yet, although for all I know, they're, they're probably trying that too. We've been lulled to sleep and deceived into thinking that can, there can be such a thing. But friend, don't you see that there really is no such thing. You need to be a member of and involved in your local church, which the Lord Jesus Christ is building. Uh, so that you can then glorify him by the gifts that he has given you to the body, the edification of the saints, and also through the preaching of the gospel to the unbelievers. Yeah, okay, good. In, in, in the, the one that, yes, the one that's copied in the book. If we, if we go back and look at it, Gary which shouldn't be too hard to find. At, at the, yes, your, your page 24. Uh, and sacraments. Right. Yeah, along, uh-huh. it's, and we could go on reading in, in the chapter in the church, but it does, it does come in here too. Holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace instituted immediately or again directly by God to represent Christ, his benefits, to confirm our interest in him, and also, here we have it, to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and to solemnly engage them to the service of God in Christ according to the world. So you see, you would, you would, put, you would push the implications of their position upon them and get them to see that they, ha- they have, until they have this uh, relationship which is signed and sealed through the sacraments, that they, then they can't possibly work that out in any meaningful way. They need to be identified visibly that there is a difference between them, uh, those who belong to the church, and those who belong to the world. Thanks, Joe. Yes. Um, to encourage everyone here, uh, from my perspective, I do. I do see that commitment to the uh, fleshing out of covenantal commitment. Commitment that is based on the covenant which God has established with his people, the covenant of life, and which he has made effective through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And all of its implications and ramifications for the different aspects of our lives. As Jane and I look to the churches uh, that have sent us, we see uh, wonderful examples of the, the possibility for family. First of all, the covenant relationship in marriage, and then as that is then expressed with the children. Uh, but not just the possibility, but the reality. And um, I, again, I'll be speaking of this, I think, this evening. 
uh, a quote that I jotted down in my note-taking on sitting under the teaching of Dr. Harvey Kahn back in Philadelphia when I was a student uh, at Westminster Seminary. And I remember uh, highlighting it, and I've since seen it in print. But I love his definition of evangelism. But we need to bear it always in mind. He said one time, and you know Harvey, he says these things and then laughs and, and backs off a little because they're kind of confrontational. And then he'll say, he'll, he'll take back with what he said and say, it's, it's more than that, but I just wanted to start, stimulate your thinking by saying it's that. His definition was evangelism is when we say to the others, come on in and take a look. Come on in and take a look. And you're right, it should be our Reformed community which presses on a, and on a world which has no idea what commitment is in the first place and no intention of staying committed to anything. That as we go through the teaching in the book of Luke about what a disciple is not and what a disciple is, that he calls us to commitment at every term. Again, he almost seems to erect the barriers instead of taking away, making it easy to come to him, to come to me, the Lord would say. He says, count the costs. Think of commitment first. But at the same time, this is not a commitment that would grow up out of our own ability, uh, but it rather it would be based on the fact that there is no such thing as commitment apart from the truth of the Lord God. All of our vow keeping, taking and all of our vow keeping has to be based on the one who alone is true. And then because of that covenantal commitment that he doesn't change, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. He promises and he fulfills. We can then become promise keepers because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world needs, the America needs to know what it means to be committed and uh, then to keep that commitment, to do so in marriages, in families, and our relationship to the local church.